Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, South Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 2 June 2023, and we were deeply involved in a discussion of type 2 diabetes and obesity and lipid-linked alteration of the immune response associated with endogenously received macrophages in the adipose, generating a pro-inflammatory state. And we are going to continue exactly where we left off. I read a paper uh, published back in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Investigation I want to um, share with you. We've talked about NAFLD, common disease, particularly in men over 50. It's called, uh, what that stands for is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So fatty deposits, triacylglycerol deposition in hepatocytes. <clears throat> That's a very common liver disease. And it's often found in obese people. In fact, the clinical specimens that have been studied up to about a year or two ago. So I read a review article published in 2021. Virtually all obese liver sections show some stage of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this is also linked at a very high level with type 2 diabetes in those obese subjects. So all of that would then translate to the probability that NAFLD, the fatty liver disease, is also directly linked to insulin resistance. <clears throat> so you have hepatic insulin resistance as well as peripheral skeletal muscle insulin resistance and that associated with adipose. Of course, what occurs with hepatic insulin resistance is uncontrolled gluconeogenesis. Remember that it's not just the amount of circulating glucose postprandial. It's not just the amount of total sugar in the diet, although those are contributing factors. It is the production from the liver of glucose from non-carbohydrate, non-fatty acid precursors that contributes more significantly to the high levels of circulating glucose in the serum. All of that, remember, is also directly related to insulin resistance, which is induced by fatty acids, the lipotoxicity component we finished with just yesterday afternoon. So there is another mechanism we need to talk about besides just direct hepatic steatosis, which is inflammation due to fatty deposit. And that is the signal transduction cascade. We're aware of the fact that diacylglycerol, which can be generated after phospholipase activity, removing, for example, inositol trisphosphate from preformed phosphatidylinositol phosphates localized to the plasma membrane. So phospholipase activity will generate diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol then can translocate 
and promote either within the membrane or associated with the membrane the activation of PKC, protein kinase C, isoform epsilon. Now, PKC epsilon will inhibit directly the insulin receptor. And it does so through the kinase activity. So remember, you can generate diacyglycerol from phospholipase activity. Okay? Phospholipase C activity will generate diacyglycerol. And again, depending on what the polar group or nonpolar group is at the three carbon position of that glycerol backbone, you can then also produce the phosphate cascade, which we've talked about in the past. Okay, now, what about diacyglycerol synthesis via the Kennedy pathway? That is, during triacylglycerol synthesis. Now, you know an intermediate there is phosphatidic acid. So as it turns out, higher levels of triacylglycerol, which we find in the NAFLD liver of obese type 2 diabetics, is a direct indicator of insulin resistance. So during the biosynthesis of triacylglycerol, the penultimate intermediate is diacylglycerol. After phosphatidic acid phosphatase generates DAG. So it's a product of that enzyme, okay? And we know that DAG turns on PKC epsilon, and PKC epsilon phosphorylates the insulin receptor kinase activity, okay? So that fits together completely and logically with the association of triacylglycerol accumulation in the liver and insulin resistance. So experiments were done to knock down hepatic PKC epsilon. And this was done with an antisense oligonucleotide. And when that was done, it was shown to prevent lipid-induced hepatic insulin resistance. That was a rat study. Okay. They've also done a similar study where they did a double knockout of the PKC epsilon. This is in murine models. This is the mouse. And they were protected from the classical, the way they induce it, high-fat-induced glucose intolerance. Remember, in mice, you feed high-fat diet, you can generate a diabetic system, including <clears throat> you can also get steatosis and the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, I'm reminding you right from the get-go that that high-fat diet urine model is not what is causing obesity, type 2 diabetes, and finally, NAFLD in diabetic obese humans because diabetic obese humans can have a very low fat diet but high caloric density so it doesn't really matter where the calories are coming from if there's a high enough caloric density all of those calories eventually all that carbon i should say eventually will be derivatized to triacylglycerol because that's the storage form of carbon in humans because recall, we're oligenous organisms. Think back to, my, back to my discussion about the evolution of metabolism, uh, which was last week. Okay.
So it seems that the antisense study done in the rats and this double knockout of PKC epsilon clearly shows that diacylglycerol is involved. And as it turns out, uh, it is the insulin receptor threonine-1160 phosphorylation, which occurs, that is the direct association linking lipid to hepatic insulin resistance. Now I'm going to tell you about Another study done, uh, this is further back, this is back in 2008 in molecular cell. It caught my attention years ago, so I have it in my uh, lectures. It was shown that colon 7 E3 ubiquitin ligase complex, which contains a, a what is known as an FBW8 substrate targeting subunit, that's an SKP1, and a ROC1 ring finger protein. Now, that whole series of polypeptides makes the complex that will generate the ubiquitinylation cascade that will lead to proteosomal degradation of polypeptides. Now, in this 2008 paper, this was a very hot topic back then, this whole time, this whole period of time, when Cullen and E3 ubiquitin ligase were being studied, uh, along with that SKP1 ROC1 ring finger protein. Okay. As it turns out, the insulin receptor substrate one, and not the receptor, but the exact downstream product of phosphorylation of the fully phosphorylated insulin receptor after insulin hormonal ligand binding, that IRS1 is actually mediating the entire insulin, insulin-like growth factor one signaling. So we talked about that as well. That is very significant central nervous system. So as it turns out, IRS1 is a proteolytic target of the CUL7E3 ligase. And as it turns out, it depends on the mammalian target of rapamycin and a P70S6 kinase activity, which, of course, we've talked about in the past as well. So when you look at embryonic fibroblasts of CUL7 double knockout mice, they will accumulate IRS1 and they'll exhibit an increased activation of IRS1 downstream AKT MEK-ERK pathway. That's all kinase cascade. So in those null mutants, the CUL7 double knockout, you get very poor viability. And that poor viability, according to the literature, is reminiscent of oncogene-induced senescence. So see, you're now learning the other side of the story. Many students have come up to me in class over the years and also online and saying to me, Dr. Guerra, why is it that it always appears that there's a pathophysiological state that's linked to obesity that we you know, don't see in healthy individuals? 
why would there be such a phenomenological sequence of events that could so easily be turned into something pathophysiological? And here is another example. It's because the system itself is in place to associate, to control oncogene-linked senescence. Remember that senescence is an aging of the cells. So all, all cells age. And when they age, they lose a lot of their capacity to regulate metabolism because the control over gene expression, protein turnover, lipid membrane turnover, and the interaction between the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome becomes terribly corrupted. This is due to the lack of high fidelity control over the regulation of the expression of transcription factor complexes and inhibitors of transcription at the level of DNA methylation and histone deacetylation which control the regulation of gene expression within one cell cycle and between cell divisions. All of that starts to diminish in its capacity, therefore fidelity, to control overall regulation of cell autonomy at multiple levels. Turnover of proteins, as I said, but also the entire bioenergetic process. That's why I link the mitochondrial genome the nuclear genome, because they were talking about buildup of reactive oxygen in the mitochondria because of alterations of the electron transport chain. Okay. So what all of this I just explained to you suggests is that this ubiquitin ligase, E3 ligase system, the Col7E3, will normally target the insulin response substrate 1 for degradation. And that process, when it becomes corrupted, could corrupt cellular fate at the level of promoting senescence. So if senescence is promoted and the cell no longer has functionality, therefore fidelity to carry out its role, let's say as a hepatocyte or a myocyte or a neuron, or a microglia, or a T-cell, or a macrophage, then that cell not only will fail to contribute to homeostasis, it could contribute to the failure of mechanisms that control cell fate, such as leading to senescence, or apoptosis, or necrotosis, or ferritosis, or indeed, massive replication, which could then be a oncogenic event. See? So you see, you have to look at both sides to understand why these systems are in place. Now I'll now I'll let you do a third paper I, I was uh, I wanted to bring up this morning. This was published much more recently in Nature Metabolism. And it talks about insulin signaling and how insulin receptor mediated control over that signaling decreases as type 2 diabetes 
becomes more morbid. While that disease increases, insulin signaling drops, and it's at the level of insulin receptor-mediated control over glucose uptake, of course. So what is the regulatory mechanism of insulin receptor reduction upon continued insulin stimulation in those early to mid stages of type 2 diabetes in obese subjects. What are some of the mechanisms? We already went through the fatty acid mechanisms. We went through the diacylglycerol mechanism. All this associated with proteolytic degradation of either the insulin receptor or the insulin receptor substrate. Now I'm going to tell you one more. There's a protein called EPH receptor B4. That's EPH B4. Now what that is, is a tyrosine kinase receptor. And what it normally does is modulate cell adhesion and migration. It also has a moonlighting role in that it binds directly to the insulin receptor. Now, this is similar, okay, similar in terms of protein-protein regulation in a membrane. When we're talking about the T-cell receptor and the CD3 protein. Remember how those two proteins in the T-cell membrane, when they interact with one another, control their activity such that CD3 helps regulate T-cell receptor modulation to be activated by an antigen-presenting cell. Here, it's not an antigen-presenting cell. It's not a cell-cell contact. It's insulin binding to the receptor. Okay? So follow through with this. So in other words, the mechanism is similar, but of course, the biochemical system is different because here we're talking about hormonal regulation, right? So... The interaction between this protein, which normally in, is in control of adhesion and migration, this protein called EPHB4, and the insulin receptor, well, that interaction between those two proteins increases at protein-protein level when the receptor is continually fired by ligand insulin. Now, when does that occur? In the obese type 2 diabetic, because you get hyperinsulinemia, remember hyperinsulinemia, during the early stages of type 2 diabetes. Of course, because you're getting a lot of insulin production from the pancreatic beta cell. Why? Because glucose isn't being cleared. And we know why glucose isn't being cleared, because the glute transporters aren't being assembled and taking in glucose any longer. And that's because of a a corruption of glucose metabolism related to fatty acid metabolism, both in the adipose and the liver and other systems, but those are the two I've covered recently. Now, third protein we have to introduce here, and we've talked about it many times, is the adapter protein, the ubiquitous adapter protein, AP2. Now, AP2 has a binding motif in EPH4, that is EPHB4, 
and therefore the interaction of EPHB4 with insulin receptor in interact in the interaction with the adapter protein 2 will facilitate a clathrin mediated insulin receptor endocytosis and degradation in the lysosome all due to excessive insulin ligand binding to the receptor and then causing the association of that EPHB4, AP2, and insulin receptor. So study in this particular paper talk was, uh, was dis, uh, that, that I'm discussing described hepatic overexpression of EPHB4. When that protein's overexpressed, you get a decrease in insulin receptor. And that increases hepatic and eventually, of course, systemic insulin resistance. Now, this was done in a mouse model. Now, genetic or pharmacological inhibition of EPHB4 will improve insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. That means they'll make the type 2 diabetic presentation worse if you inhibit EPHB4 because you're now increasing insulin resistance, you're increasing glucose intolerance, but this is in specifically obese mice, which we'll detail the genetic component of that soon. You know it's about leptin though, right? So all these observations suggest that EPHB4 is intimately uh, linked to actual insulin reception and signaling. And it suggests that EPHB4 could be a new therapeutic target for pharmacological companies that are examining or targeting insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Okay. Most of these papers always have to have some kind of um, discussion about how this could be pharmacologically manipulated. Now, Go back to talking about the immune cells. Macrophages, as you recall, increase in residence. There's more macrophages in adipose tissue as people gain body mass. So more macrophages, therefore more inflammation in the adipose in obese people. What happens there? We already went over, but macrophages will develop a self-renewal by going through what, it, what are called macrophage fetal progenitors. And these often populate tissues in utero right before birth. And they maintain their numbers, these macrophage self-renewal fetal progenitors post-parturition and they can they can exist in that system or they can go out into circulation as monocytes and this occurs right after parturition and those monocytes then get recruited and then you get a higher number total of macrophages ultimately in that neonate baby white adipose tissue the same thing occurs because 
the macrophages that we're talking about that are mature can go through a self-renewal fetal progenitor morphological change in the adipose. As it turns out, those kinds of macrophages in white adipose tissue of obese type 2 diabetics as compared to normal BMI go from a level of 10% of the macrophage population of the adipose to over 50%. So these think of these as like stem cells, these self-renewal macrophage cells, which, and again, I went through the ontogeny of them in um, late stage gestation, early after parturition in humans. And then I extrapolated that data directly just with a couple of sentences um, to the obese adult. Because, you know, what was my evidence? The evidence is that the macrophages that reside in the adipose tissue of the obese adult, which is also type 2 diabetic, which is also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease suffering, those macrophages have the same genetics and transcriptomics and proteomics of the self-renewing fetal progenitor macrophages, which ultimately will turn into monocytes and then recede into into, uh, tissues as maturing macrophages as the infant develops post-parturition. Now, the origin of those macrophages, which is, of course, just through cell division, that is, you could call it a adipose localized proliferation. That's one level. Monocyte recruitment, which we've talked about in the last three lectures, that's the second type. Or this dedifferentiation into self-renewing fetal progenitors, which may be resident even from early stages of life, um, all of that can then be a component to. Hello? Yes. Come on in. Ah. 